Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 40. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matt Hirsch, a psychotherapist, mindfulness meditation teacher, and a heart-centered entrepreneur. Never satisfied with just one approach to healing, Matt has recently been integrating energy psychology into his professional work and personal life. Matt is the founder of The Thriving Therapist, an online holistic resource for mental health professionals, self-care cultivation, burnout prevention, and private practice building. Matt recently co-founded Vital Mind, a personal growth and well-being company offering trainings in mindful parenting and vitality-boosting life habits. Matt is married with two young kids, has a love-hate relationship with social media, and is likely to pursue nature photography as a full-time gig in his next life. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Rebecca. I'm so excited for today's conversation. As am I. (laughs) You know, I think especially in today's world where, oh God, like I'm just even thinking about your intro where you have this love-hate relationship with social media, you know, and I'm thinking about today's world and how we are overwhelmed by so much information these days. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know so much of your work is about sustainable well-being and self-care, And I just thought maybe you could help bring us in a little bit into how you got into all this work and why it's so important for all of us. Sure. So a big qualifier and caveat is that I am the first to acknowledge I am not the beacon of (laughs) self-care and the uh, purveyor of all sustainable self-care that I'm working on helping others with. And so this is actually, I know you've interviewed some other folks in the past about imposter syndrome and the like. And so that actually permeates quite a bit of what I do. With that said, the way I got into self-care for mental health professionals was actually quite fortuitous. A former clinical supervisor of mine, Dr. Erica Wise, who is still at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I did my graduate training, she was authoring some scholarly articles and actually following some of the previous work she'd been doing on self-care for psychologists and ethics. It was mainly through the ethics domain that she was entering the self-care domain for practicing psychologists. And so we were talking one day, this was, I believe, back in 2011, and she asked if I wanted to co-author a paper with her. And it was a non-empirical research project, which was lovely because we were just writing and we were thinking and trying to really construct what was most helpful, frameworks and strategies most helpful for psychologists. 
and and other mental health professionals. And so I jumped on board with that writing project and we did another one. And there was uh, Claire Marks Gibson was a former student of hers as well. And so she was on the team as well, writing team. And so we wrote two papers and I really got hooked. It was very fascinating to me because I hadn't really been in that arena before. I know that ideas were always floating around in my head regarding self-care and sustainable self-care for therapists. And, you know, maybe we'll share a little bit about, you know, my personal journey Yeah, moving into or forcibly required to do my own self-care, but on an academic level or on a professional level, that was kind of the foray. And I moved into that realm and just really got hooked. I got fascinated with how do we create sustainability? Because I think there is so much out there in both the literature and sort of the lay readings literature out, you know, on the net that there's so much about skills and strategies and piecemeal approach. And I think for, yeah. It's overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming. And then all those should voices come in. Well, I should be doing it this way or I should be doing it that way. Exactly. I'm not good enough because that's the stuff that kind of infiltrates when we have this mass of information. Exactly. And that's exactly what we want to not work against in a struggle sort of fashion, but we want to build in an an easefulness to this. I love that. I just want to pause there for a minute because I think for so many of our listeners, this is the crux. And this is something that it's not talked about enough, that we don't need to push against this, but we want to look for that easeful place. I completely agree. Yes. I think we're all in pursuit, sometimes over striving for ease, which is a paradox in and of itself. And that's exactly, I think, (laughs) if I really reflect, and as you're, you know, really kind of encouraging me to reflect right now on this for our whole community, that that's maybe the whole mission here is how do we approach this in a non-overstriving way to borrow, you know, from Buddhist psychology and mindfulness literature that we easily discover uncover what our own unique path forward is for sustainable self-care. And, you know, I was very fortunate to give a talk through the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy in the Boston area this past Monday. It was such a good talk. There's actually a link to it on the Facebook page to the Facebook live talk. And we'll make sure to include that also in our show notes. It was such a good talk. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, that was very new to me to integrate my personal experience with, you know, again, being sort of forced into self-care, if you will, many years ago, about 10 years ago, in fact, you know, with the easeful pursuit, if you will, for, you know, our fellow practitioners of how to build in sustainable self-care so that it feels like it's just part and parcel of what we do and who we are versus, you know, another add-on thing to do. Yeah. And I love that piece. I think that's perhaps one of the biggest takeaways that I really walked away that really resonated like in my bones Mm -hmm. from listening to that talk of yours. It's the part about making ourselves able to follow through on these things because they fit into our lives. It's not about adding more. It's about looking at what we're already doing. That's a lovely way of framing it. And that's exactly what I think ultimately the mission of, you know, the thriving therapist that I'm working on, you know, what that mission is all about and just, you know, more generally what I think is the most easeful path forward. I happened upon actually through wife, 
interviewing somebody or talking with somebody about a year and a half ago, maybe, whose life was transformed by, I don't know if you're familiar, Abraham Hicks' Law of Attraction work. Yes, I am. Yeah. So, you know, I was never really a big Law of Attraction person. And I thought, yeah, like, you know, so you think something and then it comes to you, you know, the, the secret and all, you know, you know, I thought there was a lot of hype around that and there still is. And yet, I think the people doing, you know, the best work in that area, the law of attraction area, are very thoughtful about it. And so I've been listening to a lot of Abraham Hicks work and, you know, on YouTube and just digesting everything I can. And it's interesting to just think about putting oneself on a path, as she would say, of least resistance. And what is our path of least resistance so that we're not constantly getting in our own way? And I think adding on self-care practices, activities. Now, actually, I'll even pause for the, you know, the self-care practices and come back to that as an actually unique way of looking at this, but self-care activities, like doing more. And I would phrase that as an add-on activity for trying to help ourselves, you know, feel better or get more sleep or get more exercise or, you know, even take that vacation. These are all enormously helpful. They're add-ons. They're add-ons. So like if I start to tell myself, well, I'm going to start waking up at five in the morning so that I can get my workouts on, that's an add-on if I'm usually a 7 a.m. wake-upper. Well, I think that would be an an (laughs) add-on until or unless I think it becomes a habit habit and a habit that resonates with your deeper values, what matters, what's meaningful. And if you feel like this is really what I need. So in this talk that you're referencing and that I had the fortune Mm -hmm. to give on Monday, you know, to fellow therapists, that I was proposing that we start with a deep deservingness for ourselves of why we're even tending to ourselves, turning toward ourselves like we turn toward our loved ones and our clients, you know, with utmost care and quality of care. And to start there and move through connecting with what really does matter to us and why, so values work. And even sense of greater purpose, capital P purpose and smaller lowercase p purpose. And then becoming quite aware in a mindful way of what we need at any given moment. And certainly in the larger picture, sort of a macro and a micro view of what we need and how we're tending to ourselves. You know, what's the quality with qualities with which we tend to ourselves and look at ourselves. That is such a deep discernment process that you're describing. It is. It is yeah. not an easy one. <laughs> no, a deep one, like a very soulful one. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then so from there, from discovering what you need, where do you go next? Well, I think most of us, where we could go, and again, this is not a prescriptive sort of model or path, but where we could go from there is thoughtfully building in self-care skill. And that could mean, quote unquote, add-on activities But it's done from a place of deep deservingness, from a place of connecting and resonating with our values of what is meaningful and matters to us and why, and comes from a place of knowing in a mindful way what we really need. And so it could be a very discernible and observable add-on practice, or it could be taking three breaths after a client leaves the office. Mm. And from those activities or even small, subtle, nuanced practices that somebody else fly on the wall might not be able to detect, you know, oh, how are they caring for themselves? 
And somebody might say, I don't know. They don't look like they're doing anything. But it's less about doing something at that point and more about the integrated, embedded and embodied thoughts, beliefs, and smaller, perhaps, practices that just get woven into the fabric of who we are and what we do. And then I would propose from the sort of skillful use of those kinds of an employment of those kinds of self-care activities or practices, wisdom grows out of that. Our own self-caring being self-care comes out of that. So what I totally love about this conversation is this wisdom that you're talking about. To me, it has this flavor, this feeling of intuition. Mm. It's that deeper knowing, but also it's more than that. It's not just knowing, but it's like trusting that knowing. That's a lovely distinction and, and sort of outgrowth, yeah, from that sense of wisdom and intuition is, yes, trusting it. I think that perhaps be, as you're raising this, one of the most challenging things is yeah. we can intellectually know, we can even emotionally become attuned to what we need, but do we really trust this? And at what different stages in our lives? You know, if a loved one has a deep medical illness or just having a really rough time in our lives at any given point, are we able to come back in a trusting, really befriended sort of way, you know, to this is, yeah, this is what I need. I know this. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you raised that distinction or that quality, I think is, is really essential. Yeah. And I think that's what your process is really guiding one through, you know, starting with the deep deserving and then moving into the values and the purpose before you even get to kind of identifying what the need is that comes before the skill and the knowledge and the wisdom, you have really guided through a process of like checking in and all right, where am I here? Why am I doing this? Like by the time you get to that wisdom layer, <laughs> there's so much that already is being held. Exactly. And that's, I think, where the trust comes. That's a lovely way to describe it. I hadn't thought of it in that way. And I think that's a really nice synthesis and gives a nice quality of confidence. Yeah. There's constant growth. And from that growth and even experimentation and perceived failure comes a trusting if you can, well, trust to come back to a centered place of, well, you know, my mission is this. Yeah. And I think this is what's so integral and what I'm so loving about this conversation and why I was so excited to talk to you is because you really to explore what is the personal truth and how is that universal? Like, what's the mission? What's, what are the values? What's the purpose, right? That's the stuff that grounds the sustainability. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we can't be floating around, as you said earlier, in this sort of piecemeal fashion or it's, you know, we're, it's overwhelming to yeah. look at all the things we could or should, as you mentioned, be doing and that just doesn't serve us. But that's the, I think that's the ultimate challenge. I'm up against that daily for myself, for my family, you know, for my kids. What should we be doing? You know, my three-year-old, just a, you know, a quick personal anecdote is my three-year-old son doesn't sleep very well. And maybe by the time he listens to this, he will be. <laughs> but um, that is my hope and dream. But, you know, he wakes up with nightmares. He, you know, gets up, in fact, got up like four times last night. And so by extension, as you might imagine, my wife and I are exhausted and perpetually sleep deprived. 
I cannot relate. I was up all night with my nine-year-old who was going through some nine-year-old changes in her sleep. <laughs> well, yes, I'm totally there with you. Well, uh, we're in that boat <laughs> together. And, and you know what? As a side note, that always helps. And I know this is what groups are for. And I know this is what communities are all about. Even when we're struggling and even when we're going through, you know, what most of the world is going through at this point or much of it is that when we are walking alongside others and we can think of others in the same boat and saying, yeah, that is tough. I'm there with you. you know? I like to call it the me too experience. Yeah. I feel like that's the juice of what pulls us together and why I think so many listeners listen to these shows and then they go, oh yeah, that's me too. I get that. I feel that way. That's the relatability. Exactly. From briefly knowing what your connectfulness movement is all about. I mean, that seems like that's exactly what you're trying to help cultivate. <laughs> I hope <Yeah>. so. Extremely <laughs> honorable and admirable. You know, I was having, just to kind of take our sides a little further aside before we come back into center, I was having a really deep conversation with my daughters on the way to school today. They're seven and almost nine. And we were talking about the question, why? And we were talking about why, why is such an important question to keep asking. Oh, wow. So it was a really beautiful conversation, but I think on some level, as we talk about your process here and, and looking at the values and the purpose and the needs, that question and that kind of little vignette of a story kind of popped back up for me. That's such an important, I mean, when we're asking our kids to reflect on what we are trying to do, really, you know, for our <laughs> communities and ourselves, that's such a powerful legacy to leave and such a, well, a relational and connectfulness moment as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the why, why. And you know, often I think we are at least, I know for myself when I am extremely exhausted, if one of my two children asks why, I might just want to give a quick, and I rarely say yeah. because, but you know, it's that same flavor is, come on, let's just keep going. And you know, the pausing the respectful pause for the well what's really happening here though and what's motivating it and well just the why questions i think do deserve quite the attention i love hearing your story about actually having that kind of conversation with your kids that's wonderful so let's ground us right now in your story mm -hmm. because i think you know we are talking about some really big stuff and for many of our listeners we might need to put this in a story that they can really sink their teeth into and understand. And I know that you have a story that is powerful. I do have a story. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel it's powerful. <laughs> you feel it's powerful. And it is, it is powerful in many ways. And obviously, it's up to the individual listener to resonate in whatever way, you know, they are able to resonate and willing to resonate. Your story is such a beautiful introduction into this practice of sustainable well-being and being mindful of how to put this together. And it is a really beautiful illustration that can help bring us in, even though it might not be the story of many people who are listening. Well, that's beautifully framed. I appreciate your framing it in that way. Yeah, and I agree. It may not be content certainly, hopefully is not, you know, it doesn't resonate with most people, but maybe the sentiment does. And so with that intro, there are ellipses and, and we're waiting for what the story really is. So the story is that a decade ago, 
and actually a little bit more than, you know, 10 years exactly. I was diagnosed with a very rare and very severe form of cancer that basically just came out of the blue. I'm, I'm not sure many cancers are totally, you know, predicted or predictable, but this one was very much out of the blue. And it was, I think, I believe a one in four or four and a half million frequency of cancer. So very, very rare, you know, really only a handful of people in, in our country you know, are struggling with this particular aspect of cancer. And so, and it was basically, you know, a sarcoma that grew out of my spine, a nerve out of my spine. And so I struggled in the first few months with some pain. And then I was diagnosed with this particular cancer, which was just kind of a tumor sitting in the back of my chest. And I, as you might imagine, you know, became extremely fearful of my own mortality very quickly. And my wife, as I mentioned in this talk on Monday, you know, my wife, and I'm not sure still to this day how she talk about sustainability, she became essentially my mindfulness and every other type of coach, you know, imaginable to kind of, you know, to just to scaffold and support and sustain, you know, me through those times. I, for myself, was very committed to every form of care and self-care you could imagine from doing my own guided imagery to getting a therapist slash hypnotherapist, one of the best guys in, in this area and learning ener some energy medicine and being with energy medicine specialists and, you know, learning a ton about nutrition for cancer and going to an acupuncturist three times a week and, you know, you name it. And of course, doing the more kind of conventional treatments of chemo and radiation and then two major surgeries. And so but care became your full-time gig. That is exactly, exactly right. Self-care became my full-time gig and my wife's caring for me became her full-time gig. Fortunately, I did not have children at the time. And fortunately, as I was actually on clinical internship at the time, the supervisors and folks around me were very understanding. And I basically stopped working you know, when I was diagnosed and entered all the very, very intense treatments. And you're exactly right. So self-care became my full-time gig. And the distinction I was highlighting in this talk on Monday, which, you know, I'll bring forth here is that the sustainability aspect, quality, sustainability quality of the self-care we're talking about, for me at least, the seed for that was not planted. The sustainability seed was not necessarily planted because this was, it felt forced. It felt forced upon me, even though I was making conscious choices to do all these things. I didn't have to do any of them. I didn't have to do any of them. And yet I did, I think in large part out of fear, but also fear. Yeah, fear, fear was a huge driver and fear never sustains what we really want in life. It does push us it forward. pushes us forward. Fear is not a value though. No, I don't think I've met anyone who says, I want to be afraid today. And avoidance of fear can seem like a very well worthy endeavor, but avoidance of fear, I mean, this is what we help people with all the time. You know, this is what our, our professional missions are all about in many ways is not avoiding anything is showing up. I mean, this is what your, I think your whole mission is, is about is vulnerability and, mm -hmm. and being courageous yeah. to live in that, you know, in that world. And, and yet it's also something that as mental health professionals, as clinicians, we are afraid of. Yes. 
You know, like for us to be seen, we're supposed to be behind these walls. We're not supposed to be fully human. I say jokingly with, yeah. yeah. That's the exact irony or the paradox of this all. Exactly that. Yeah. We have to come back to an abiding sense of being human. That is exactly right. And I mean, so many approaches to psychotherapy highlight that. I mean, I know, you know, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, really highlights that in a Mm -hmm. very focal way that we are no different really from the clients who sit in front of us. And you're right. And we're supposed to be, you know, the providers, right? We're supposed to be the ones who help and not the ones who need help. And yet we often have such parallel processes. Yeah. And so I want to come back to this because you're talking about how fear is not a value and we can't really avoid fear as you're illustrating, you know, through your own story and your personal journey. I'm curious about what you do with that because sitting in fear is a really difficult thing to ask somebody to do. Yes. I think getting to know what fear really is and what it's driving us to do and what we're missing because of it overwhelming us, what we're missing in the rest of our lives because fear has come to dominate or fear has come to be a overly prominent force in our lives. I think getting to know that in a more intimate way and how fear really is operating, I think is one of the ways to work with that. Sitting with raw fear just for the hell of it is, you know, not necessarily a great thing. I'm also reminded of Ron Siegel, one of, you know, mindfulness gurus around here in this area who's written a lot and spoken a lot about mindfulness and taught mindfulness in so many realms. And I've heard him talk about this practice where you challenge yourself to feel as much as you can when you think that you're going to you know, implode or explode. And that never happens. It's just, you know, the fear of the fear. I love that. (laughs) I really like that. You know, it's done with mindfulness training behind us, you know, or supporting us, of course. But that really, when it comes down to it, we are living in our own skin and we think that we're trapped in some way. And I'm a big proponent these days of energy medicine and energy psychology. And when we think about flow, you know, we're talking about meaning as well, but we're, when we talk about flow, that we think things are going to get stuck and we think things are going to get trapped inside us and we're never going to leave. When in fact, that sort of path of least resistance or the easeful way forward is cultivating flow. And so if we let our minds and bodies, especially our bodies, allow the fear to move through us rather than, oh no, here it is. What do I do with it? How do I get rid of it? Right then it's a struggle. And right then it feels trapped. I'm just pausing in that because I don't want to cloud up those words right now. When we let our minds and our bodies move through the fear, that's where the expansiveness happens. That's where the sustainable seeds get planted. That's where we don't get stuck in the struggle. Yes. (sighs) Thank you for that. You're welcome. So let's come back to your story. You were not going to get trapped in your fear. I did daily and then I didn't. So it was very much, if we use those two terms, meaning and flow, it was very much a, I don't want to die. I mean, quite literally, I don't want to die and I want to be here and I want to move through this and how do I do this? And then I felt trapped 
by all the bodily sensations, let's say, of chemo and radiation. But then I also felt flow because I was doing guided imagery and hypnotherapy and acupuncture and actually feeling less of the you know, side effect symptomatology that others felt. And I was quite lucky, or maybe not so lucky, I was quite maybe, you know, deliberately skillful in that meeting my experience that way, even though I didn't, would never have considered it at the time skillful. And fear plagued me every day. You know, only you, only the person really knows what's going through the head and the body. And I say head, I really mean, you know, what the mental apparatus the yes, is, is generating <laughs> and you feel it everywhere. And, you know, if we're really talking, you know, connectedness, you know, there's no real distinction here to be made between thoughts and feelings necessarily. And so, and yeah, I felt that every day, multiple times a day. And yet I felt the drive forward, both out of fear of dying and not wanting to be in that situation, but also because I wanted to be with my wife and I wanted to keep going. And in fact, I recall, and this is, I didn't mention this in the, in the talk on Monday, you know, an image just came forth in my head, which is my wife and I were sitting in a consultation doctor's appointment with a thoracic surgeon. We didn't end up going with him, but for part of my surgery, he basically said, yeah, it looks like we'll probably have to remove all of your left lung, which they ended up doing anyway. But he made that comment in a, I don't want to say cavalier way, but you know, in a surgical way. And he was very straightforward with it. And my wife, I think she told me, you know, later, she, you know, nearly passed out. And I either was numb to it, dissociated a bit, or, and I'm going to choose the or, because, and I really actually strongly feel this this way, that I was in it, and I never really use this expression, but in it to win it. I mean, I was ready for whatever they had to offer me to move forward. So that's not fear. That was actually striving for life. Can I just come back to something that you just said that I think is really also important? You said that you were going to choose the or. Mm. And I think there's always an or. One of my mommy friends who happens to be an amazing retreat leader and yogi often reminds me of this. I'll always say, you know, this is what I think is happening. And she'll say, or this. And I think there's always an or that sometimes we're not giving ourselves permission to even see. And that that's often a path back to the flow. That's a lovely way of seeing that. I really like that. I do too. When I heard you say, choose the or, I just kind of had this little moment there and I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the or. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the lovely part about our being meaning making beings, right? We can, you know, what feels like stuckness can become unstuck and flow again through a choice to make meaning in a different way, that's very challenging when we're caught up anyway. And when we're, you know, just from a sort of a neurobiological perspective, you know, when our amygdalae, amygdalas are, <laughs> you know, are firing and screaming at us. And when our frontal lobes are shut off, that's sometimes nearly impossible. But, but if it's a practice, then yes, then the or can be offered to us. Yeah. So you found your or. I found my or in that moment and in other moments, you know, I think back and this is partly because I had such amazing other help and support and the guided imagery I did and the hypnotherapy I did, but I look back and it still doesn't bother me that I don't have a left lung. It still doesn't bother me and it doesn't freak me out like other things freak me out that I'm walking around with one lung. I even had severe pneumonia almost three years ago 
and was hospitalized for a week. And everybody said, well, you are a high risk case. You know, this is not good. And still, I mean, at the time, my mortality salience came back, screaming back. But it's not a daily fear of mine. It's this, I don't have a left lung. It's a nuisance at times when I'm trying to run. But I'm not running marathons. But you found your sustainable <laughs> Right, right. I'm walking and maybe jogging places and, you know, I can build up my endurance for sure, but I'm likely not running marathons. Although, you know, I heard stories and these are the stories that are absolutely crucial when you're going through times like that. You hear stories of overcoming and stories of thriving and success despite whatever you're experiencing. And I heard a story about a guy who had you know, a spinal fusion from surgeries. And I also have a a spinal fusion as well. Thoracic vertebrae are are fused. And so this guy was missing some parts of his torso and had a spinal fusion and he was climbing mountains afterwards. And I kind of held on to that for a while of, wow, that's possible. It's possible, you know, not for everybody, but. Which brings me to your business, which is called The Thriving Mm. Therapist. And it makes me think about your purpose and your mission and kind of the values that you hold for Mm -hmm. that, because the stories feel very much aligned. I think they are. And when I first conceived of Thriving Therapist doing this kind of work, and I think really when it emerged out of the work I was doing with Erica Wise and Claire Marks Gibson, writing those more scholarly papers on self-care, I really felt like this was just kind of a cool subject. <laughs> and who would have known it, where right, it would it take you? Right. <laughs> and so, you know, as a, I guess an important side note of where you take your new journeys, you know, where they take you. And I was listening to one of your recent episodes on branding and how it feels sort of awkward, but not to sort of brand yourself in a particular way and how to do so, even when you're trying to be very heartful about it. And, you know, it seems awkward to say, you know, out of a near-death experience, basically, I'm creating the thriving therapist, but it somehow also seems quite resonant that it just fits into my larger sense of who I am. Of why. Yes. And of why. Coming back to that three-letter word, yes. Yeah. Yes. And sustainability, you know, and this is, I guess, your question about, you know, the business and how that emerged, the Thriving Therapist concept is my medical illness and the cancer I experienced and the treatments and the healing from that, that didn't necessarily, for me at least, create a sustainability for self-care because of the fear and because of the crisis. For others, I think it does. It does create a sustainability because it's now that's just what they do and it's just not a choice for them and they feel like I have to do this. For me, I think growth, and I never thought I would say this, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but I think maybe more trusting for myself to say this, that, you know, growth is paramount for me. Becoming, becoming is what I'm all about, I think. And so the sustainability, I think, as we were talking about before, I think in some ways has to come from an emergent process of becoming, knowing who you are, knowing what you need, knowing what your values are, knowing deeply in a somatic way that you deserve to care for yourselves. And as my thriving therapist sort of slogan is, you know, as brilliantly as we care for others, right? To care for ourselves in such a deserving way that 
there's no choice but to be sustainable after that because that's how we operate. That's the fabric of who we are at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There is so much that I want to continue to weave into this conversation, and I'm also aware of time. So I think I might save some of it and ask you to come back. Because I want to, at some point, maybe not today, but at some point, I also want to talk about the self of the therapist and being a highly sensitive Mm -hmm. person. And, you know, the wounds that the therapist carries, because we're all human, into the work. And how to shape and balance kind of all of that and hold it in that way that, because I think this is the thing that might get in the way of feeling deserving. So maybe we do go there a little bit today. But I think this is the thing that I've noticed a lot of therapists struggle with, where they don't feel that they are deserving and they they have trouble holding themselves in that regard. I would agree with that. And I would resonate with that personally as well at times. You know, in some ways, I feel like both for highly sensitive therapists, as well as, you know, the other 80 to 85% of us out there, and maybe actually therapists are not representing the general population where, as you mentioned before, we're probably maybe the majority of us are highly sensitive. I'm not sure. I really want to see that research by, yeah, by Elena or others. <laughs> I'm not willing to do it myself right now, but I would really love to see that empirical research. But and it's probably an easy enough study to do. So whoever's out there, do that. Do that. Do that we want to know it. Know. <laughs> the deservingness yeah. is, I think, a tough one to come by for professionals who have dedicated, and I want to say just their professional lives, but it's, I think it's woven into a lot of who we are and how can it not be in some ways that we are looking to others to help others, to heal others, to relieve others' suffering. And I think having a very firm foundation of our own deservingness to care for ourselves in that exact way, I think it just may be missing in a lot of us because we're so often focused on the other. And maybe we have been for our whole lives. And I have a theory about that that is still forming, but I'd love to run it by you. And I think many therapists come into this profession because in different ways, we're wounded healers, whether those be traumatic events or attachment issues or whatever the case may be. It could even be epigenetics and transgenerational transmission of trauma. But there are some voids and some wounds in there. And my wondering, my curiosity takes me to the place that those sensitivities our cues around kind of what our intuition maybe needs or what keeps us safe. And also that desire to care for others is our way of kind of, it was a survival mechanism. It was a defense mechanism at some point. And it's still something we're working through. It's still our work to do. Yeah. I like that theory. It's respectful (laughs) and it honors the parts of us that are just trying to help us feel okay for trying to help us soothe and internal family systems thinking, you know, those are the protectors that we need and everyone has and that have helped us get by. And then we can actually have conversations as parts of ourselves. I think that's a very interesting way to, and very, again, sort of self-respectful way of looking at that. Yeah. I think it's probably true for everybody, but because therapists are so kind of highly attuned to everybody else (laughs) and sometimes not as attuned to themselves, although ideally they would be. We all should be. I'm putting myself in the category of not always being. (laughs) 
I think it's an interesting conversation and we make an interesting little group to kind of explore and, and look Most at that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So can we come back to this becoming also? I equally have like a love of this word becoming and I'll share. <laughs> this is another little silly tangential story. But when I was in my 20s and on a crazy long backpacking trip and kind of pushing myself to my outer limits, a mantra kind of came to my head from I don't know where. And it's always stuck with me. So this has been over two decades at this point. And it's just this little thing, but it holds me. And it's I'm a younger version of this older woman. And in many ways, it's a story about becoming. Hmm. So it's something that just kind of finds its way into my consciousness at times. And I don't know where it comes from or where it came from, but it shows up in just the right way. Fascinating. The mantra is, I'm a younger version of this older woman. Yes. If I may ask, does anything come to you at that moment? Sure. Any imagery or... If I meditate on it, I can kind of see her, this older woman. And I've done some meditation around that at, at different times, some in my own therapeutic work that's been guided. And I mean, I see this older woman as an embodiment of wisdom. Right. You know, that's a lovely story. And it conjures up for me this idea of the maybe process that we can actually go through of future selves. And mm -hmm. at any given point in in where we are in our lives, that if we're feeling trapped, if we're feeling overly vulnerable in our own way, if we're feeling like we're stuck, that a sense of, you know, I'm a younger version of an older me, of a wiser me, of a more trusting, self-trusting me, that ideally would help either push us forward when we're feeling, you know, stagnant or create more expansiveness when we're, you know, feeling, uh, you know, constricted. Yeah, I guess to you know fold that into becoming is that we're always becoming, of course, and and oh, yet yes. we're also just right here. And if I guess if we overly focus on becoming, as you know, some of the mindfulness greats out there would caution us against, then you know, then we're missing what is actually is in these moments. But but that's inevitable. We're constantly changing, and that's of course the idea of impermanence. And so. I love harnessing that. I love your story and that mantra because we're harnessing the fact that we are always becoming and it doesn't just stop right here. And I guess it if doesn't. we train our children, like you have that conversation with your kids, right? <laughs> if we plant that seed and water it, you know, we're always, yeah. We're Who always knows? Yeah. And, you know, today is not tomorrow. And we want that sense of stability and certainty, but in, you know, we get fearful when it's not that way when we want it to be a particular way, but we can also become very almost excited for, you know, what's out there. For the unknown. And that's the thing, right? That's the space. If we come back to fear for a minute, that's the space that fear lives. It lives in everything yes. we don't know. It lives in all the uncertainty, the questions about our mortality, the questions about, am I going to build a sustainable practice? And can I take care of myself and my family and create a livelihood and a life that feels good for me. Like all of those unknowns, that's the space that fear tends to live. Yes, indeed. Were you in my head this morning? Because those were the exact... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> we're listening in to my thought. No, that's exactly right. Those are the big questions. I imagine we all, at least many of us as practitioners do ponder either daily or from time to time. Yep. Yeah. I'm also curious, and I wonder if you can take us there, because my interest got piqued. And you were talking a little bit about 
some energy medicine in your own story that you got attracted to. And I know that energy psychology is now a big part of your work. And I think this is still a very emerging field. It's something that a lot of people don't know a lot about. So can you take us there for a little bit? I'm also wondering if that's a piece of the connection that we just experienced. (laughs) It it very well may be. So I guess as an origin story, if you will, I have for some reason, and I don't want to say always, but for a long time, for over well over two decades, been fascinated by traditional Chinese medicine, but not knowing really how to study it or where to go. And I actually, between college and graduate school, I took a course when I was a research assistant at the NIH, National Institute for Health, Mental Health, NIMH. I took a course. I don't know why. I just took a course after work on uh, traditional Chinese medicine. And we had this massive text and I couldn't really understand most of it and didn't really make my way through it very well. But I still just had this fascination with meridians and with flow and stuckness, I guess. And so, and fast forward, you know, 10 years from that point, you know, when I was up against the medical illness and, and cancer treatments and healing, and I had the very, very good fortune. My wife and I both had the very good fortune of meeting and working a bit with lovely holistic healer and nurse practitioner, I believe, Mary Jane Ott, excuse me, who works, you know, in various hospitals in the Boston area. And she set us up with some very easeful notions of how to move through those treatments and even sitting in a waiting room. How do you eat more easily and in a more grounded way move through those very challenging moments where energy, where there's a nervous energy atmospherically, you know, in the room where stories are being told around you by other patients. And so that was my more kind of quote unquote contemporary introduction to energy work. And she, you know, offered a a few energy practices, uh, not at energy psychology practices necessarily. And then Fast forward from there to maybe about five years ago, just after I was starting my private practice, and I honestly don't remember how I came across this, but I came across Nick Ortner and the Tapping Solution, and he's done some amazing work of getting, you know, emotional freedom technique, you know, EFT tapping and energy psychology out into the public sphere. And he's done a lot of good foundation work to help traumatized folks and, you know, from Newtown, Connecticut. And so he was on my radar somehow. And I started reading his book and I started watching his videos and I was hooked. Again, there was very little explanation, you know, very little sense of, oh, why am I doing this? The why wasn't really, there was no question of it. I just was supposed to be doing this. So it it perhaps is a capital P, you know, purpose for me. And I just, you know, keep coming back to it. And now I'm very much invested in it and trying to be actually on the path of certification for comprehensive energy psychology to really kind of hopefully know much more in depth how to help others suffering and how to help growth and expansiveness through energy psychology. And so really what we're talking about when we say the words energy energy psychology is in a very general way, we're talking about flow. We're talking about the body flow and balance. We're talking about just as we would think about our circulatory system and our arteries and veins and our nervous system, our nerve and neural networks running throughout our bodies, that there are meridians, there are energy pathways, you know, and energy, and actually they've discovered these pathways when they were more theoretical, not so long ago. And they're like, you know, microns 
wide. And so it's not like they're easily detectable, but they're there according to some research and they map onto the theoretical notions from, you know, three, 4,000 years ago, even certainly 2000 years ago. And when energy, if you will, this sort of electrical electromagnetic currents get stuck in these pathways, we mentally, emotionally, physically get stuck. We get symptoms. This is the stuff that Chinese medicine is built off of. I mean, this is ancient medicine. It's ancient knowledge. And our culture is just starting to do research yes, around it. Yes, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, exactly. This is not a new, by any stretch, this is not a new endeavor or a new discovery. It's more like, yeah, like you said, the research is being done now. And energy psychology folks are really trying to empirically demonstrate, and they're doing an increasingly good job of it in a more rigorous fashion lately, to demonstrate that when we, let's say, tap or stimulate acupoints along these meridians, or when we even in the Ayurvedic system, when we balance or clear out chakras, you know, the chakra systems, we regain better mental, emotional, physical balance in our bodies. We not just clear out symptomatology, but we get to the roots of what's happening because of the stuck energy and even the stuck themes, if you will, you know, in the chakras, this, the, you know, what's being held by our bodies in these energy systems, energy pathways and energy centers, and even in the biofield or the aura of the body around the protective, you know, aspects around the body that can get, as I'm learning increasingly, you know, there's stuckness there too. You can talk about sort of sticky biofields where stuff sticks and we need to smooth those out and clear those. So that we can create exactly. the flow again, so that we can create. It's like when you go on a hike in the woods and it exactly. hasn't been bushwhacked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have to get the grooves uh, worn better in the right directions and maybe leave the other ones, you know, alone. Yeah. Thank you for this, Matt. I love this discussion of energy as it pertains to all of this, because I really feel that so much of what we've been talking about today has been about kind of planting these seeds of sustainability. And I think all of this is a part of this conversation. Yes, I would agree. Yep. Yeah. So I'd love to have you back on sometime. But in the meantime, how can folks get a sure. hold of you? So I think the best way to, you know, get a little bit more of the, you know, this idea of sustainability of self care, and, you know, know what the mission of the Thriving Therapist is all about is go to thethrivingtherapist.org. And that's, I think, the best way at this point. It's a pre-launch website at this point. I'm working behind the scenes and have been working, I might say, and there's a should in here, but way too long on developing the presence, if you will, the outward facing presence of the thriving therapist. But because it deeply deserves well, a certain presence. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm very glad you said that. So there's a bit of perfectionism in there and there's a bit of stagnation in there, but I like the deservingness piece. Yes. So I'm going to run with that. That's the or, or it deserves, right. Or it's deserving. So it's, <laughs> is this going to stay with me? So it's a pre-launch page, but I finally perhaps cleared some of my throat chakra blockages, if you will, and recorded some videos. I have just a, you know, a free video series on some thriving therapist principles of self-care. So I have a three-part series, video series that you can check out. Just, you know, you can sign up for that through email when you reach the page. And then hopefully, you know, the page, the site itself gets 
launched very soon, hopefully this fall. And I actually have pretty much every topic we've talked about. And some of the folks I've mentioned are on an audio interview based online course that I produced a long time ago that's basically sitting waiting to be thrown out there into the world. So hopefully, you know, that can reach some people and, you know, hopefully, you know, affect some change in us the way we desire it. So... I'm really excited to watch your work come to light and to have you back on here again. Well, I as well. very much appreciate that, Rebecca. That would be wonderful and lovely. And, you know, if I can just say, I think the work that you're doing is tremendously courageous and I think helps all of us. And I know this is your mission, helps all of us be seen and heard in the way that we, you know, that each and every one of us deserves. So I'm very thankful and grateful to you and your work. I feel called to kind of bow to you right now, Matt, and just say something like, you know, similar to how we would close out our yoga classes where I practice, but the light in me sees the light in you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, I so enjoyed talking to Matt Hirsch. I could probably talk to him for eons. (laughs) It feels like so much of his work and my work are, are just so resonant. You know, one of my favorite things about Matt and the way he talks about this stuff is how he talks in this this need for us to build in an easefulness in our lives, that we have to do that by tapping into what our own values are, what are our deeper values, and finding what resonates with that. He says it comes from this deep deservingness place for ourselves, and that when we connect to what really matters and why, when we can be aware of what we need, then we can tend to ourselves and then we can add in more skill. That so much of that ends up happening in small little ripples and small practices. And I, I know these small practices. This is so much of what connectfulness is about and also what the Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program is bringing forth. The Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program is now live. And I'd love for you to take a look at it. It's a 22-week program that culminates in an in-person retreat. I know that you're meant to make an impact on the world, and I know that you know that too. But you need a different kind of nurturing, something that can really sustain you and hold you. A community that will combat the isolation of private practice and, and a place for you to gain deeper insights into how your personal story weaves into all of your professional work. I know this because I'm on this path too. And so have the dozens of colleagues that I've been mentoring over the years in online forums, in-person retreats, one-on-one work, and in all of these deep conversations that we've been having over here on the Popscast. So in the Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program, You're going to learn how to make more space for your creativity. You'll learn how to discern what those inner knowings are and illuminate your shadows. You'll weave your story into your work and you'll end up giving yourself permission to launch. Imagine the liberation when you can finally put action behind all of those visions. So it's your time. Join me. Check out the practice of Being Seen's Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program. There's a link to join us in the show notes. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd especially love it if you rate and review the show. 
We'd always love to hear your feedback. You can join us in the Pubscast community on Facebook or drop us a line at practiceofbeingseen.com slash feedback. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another amazing episode of the Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>